Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, of course, and the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Lord, this is your word. There's power in your word, Lord, and we need to become familiar with it. So, Lord, use your word to clear out the stuff in our lives that don't belong. Lord, if there's any sin within us, Lord, may we just leave it before you. In Hebrews, it says to get rid of all the weight and sin which slows us down and to run the race that is set before us with endurance, looking to Jesus as our as the finisher of our faith. Help us to keep our eyes on you and help us to remember that you are king. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So around this time and Christmas time, uh, no doubt many, if not all churches, will take a pause on their study through Scripture to focus in on two specific events in human history, right? The birth of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, for those who come to church regularly, I personally feel as if this time of year we tend to check out. We tend to just say, oh, I've heard this message a thousand times. I know what he's going to talk about today. It's Palm Sunday. They're going to mention Hosanna. They're going to mention something about Jesus riding on a donkey. And in our minds, we might lean towards this thought. It's the same message. And you're right, it is, because the message never changes. It has power in, in it, and we need to, like I, I prayed, become familiar with it. Now, uh, for churches, uh, we tend to use Easter as this time to focus on uh, reaching the lost, as we should, always. Not just around Easter, but we should focus on uh, reaching the lost uh, throughout our entire year, uh, but that kind of becomes the focal point. It, it becomes the, the primary uh, centerpiece in Easter is to tell everybody about the gospel, uh, which we should. 
every part of the year. But we tend to leave out the encouraging the found part. We, we, we hit home on reaching the lost, which we should, but then it comes to those of us who are already saved. How does Easter still apply to me? I've been walking with the Lord for years. How does Palm Sunday apply to me? I've heard this story told in children's ministry dozens of times. My teachers even brought palm branches to drill the point home. I believe there needs to be a balance between the two. There needs to be a balance between reaching the lost and encouraging the found, especially at, at these times. Maybe you're here this morning and it's been a while since you've been in, in church. Maybe life circumstances have pulled you away and you're finally back. Welcome home. But listen, the fact remains at this. God wants to reach the lost and encourage the found through His Word. Through His Word. Yesterday, we, a few of us got the, the privilege of going to an evangelism conference. And uh, whether it was myself or whether it was one of the breakout session guys or the other pastor, it, it seemed like the central theme was more centered around the power of God's word than anything else. And, and I think we forget that. Sometimes we come to our Bibles and we're like, oh, it's just a history book. Read it. Watch God totally transform you. Watch Him open your eyes, reveal things about you (laughs) that you probably would not want to be revealed. But God knows. God knows what needs to be revealed to you. But we have to understand that God encourages the found through His Word and He reaches the lost through His Word. So whether you come here all the time or, or you come every so often, My prayer for you this morning is that no matter how far away or close you are to God, that His Word would be uh, the, the determining factor to you seeing that Jesus is King. His word, that, that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus is king. I, I don't think Craig and Ian talked about what Craig was going to be talking about in communion, but the last song paired up perfectly. And, and for some of us, we need the reminder that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is Savior. He is the only way, and He's worthy of all of our worship. And so you might have come here this morning, and you might have seen on your calendar that it's Palm Sunday, and already in your mind, you're like, yep, knew this was coming. There's two questions I want to answer this morning in regard to the triumphal entry. Uh, The first question is, what is the significance of the triumphal entry? In other words, why does it matter? Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. Should I really be that hyped up about it? Yeah, you should. It matters. We're going to hopefully unpack it a little bit for us to better understand why it matters. But the second thing is, has anybody ever ridden on a donkey before? (laughs) Yeah, chances of that happening are very unlikely. So, But there are some principles within this passage that we need to apply to our own lives because like Craig was saying a week before this event Jesus would face the cross he would face one of the the most horrific sufferings in human history Uh, now what is the significance of the triumphal entry well It was a week before the crucifixion, a pivotal point in the earthly ministry of Jesus, where he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And and we have to keep in mind that Jesus was actually a frequent visitor of Jerusalem. 
Uh, He wasn't a stranger to Jerusalem. He would go there quite often. Uh, This time, though, there was something completely different about it. There was something special about it. There were no other times that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey except this time. And so when somebody rides in on a donkey, your eyes are tuned to that person. They're, 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 They're fixated upon the scene. What is happening that I should be even giving any care to? For starters, the significance is that it was very prophetic. Zechariah 9.9, which is in the Old Testament, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look! In another translation it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. The only place that we can find salvation is in Jesus, the king. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This was not a common practice for a king. Nobody would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Think Shrek, okay? (laughs) Nobody would ride in on donkey. They would want a stallion. They would want something that wowed everybody. Like, look, Mark is coming on a black stallion. But Jesus didn't do that. I don't know if you caught this in Zechariah 9.9. It says that he is righteous, yes, having salvation is he, but humble. Now, in the Old Testament, there are over 500 prophecies that point to or describe the coming Messiah. Over 500 prophecies point to Jesus. Now, with precision, it is very hard to really give an exact number to how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled. But if we were to give an estimate, it would be close to 380 fulfilled prophecies. He's not done yet. That's why we're studying Revelation. Jesus is going to continue to fulfill prophecy. But Jesus' kingdom and his kingship were promised in the Old Testament. Uh, Even in Genesis, we see uh, the conversation between God and Abraham. God is telling him that that from you, there would be somebody who would last forever. His kingdom would have no end. And guess who God is talking about? Not a trick question. Jesus. It was prophetic in the sense that the Old Testament prophesied this would happen. However, it is also prophetic in the sense that it prophesies that Jesus will reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever. Philippians 2.10-11 through 11, So that at the name of who? Every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, there will be a day where people who don't even believe in Jesus will come to an understanding that Jesus is King. And they will confess, they will believe, but it might be, unfortunately, too late. There will be a day much like how the disciples in Jerusalem experienced when they saw their king coming in on a donkey where where they shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There will be a day for us where we will essentially echo what the disciples were saying. That we will say that Jesus, you are king. There will be a day that you and I will bow and our tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, He is King. However, some will be confessing for the first time. 
only to find themselves headed in a different direction than heaven. So here's the point. It's better to confess Jesus as your king now than to confess him as king later because it may be too late. And it's all due because of the fact that we have stubborn and hard hearts. Jesus said uh, to come to him with a childlike faith. Not only was it prophetic, it was also planned. Jesus told his disciples to go into the village, right? He said, go into the village, and he gave them kind of the game plan. It was very rare that Jesus told the disciples step by step what would happen. But, but this is the time where Jesus says, okay, you're going to go into a village. You're going to find a donkey. Someone is no doubt going to ask you, why are you untying the donkey? Uh, you probably, if you own that donkey, you would ask the same thing. But Jesus knew that everything that, that he said was going to happen, this was prophetic. Jesus knew that this was something and, uh, that, that was going to, to take place. And to the disciples, it was probably a little weird. You want us to go into a village, find a donkey, and bring it back to you? <laughs> yeah. The disciples were like, okay, we'll go. We'll go get the donkey. We'll, we'll even, uh, you know, give the, the owner of the donkey the exact words that you, you told us to, to tell him. And what happened? They go into the village. They find the donkey. The owner says, why are you untying my donkey? And they say, the Lord has need of it. Exactly how Jesus said it would happen. Listen, here's what we can come to find when we listen to Jesus' words. They will be exactly how Jesus said Amen. Jesus said his words, everything that he's given us in scripture, they would never fail. Luke one thirty seven. for the word of God, remember Jesus is God, for the word of God will never fail. All that the Lord has promised in his word, you can be certain that they will come to pass. Hebrews 10.23 says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise tightly listen if, if you're not holding on tightly to every single word of the Lord then you're holding on to something else that is not worth you holding on to let go of your grip and cling to the words of God cling to the words of Jesus because his words never fail listen how many times have you been disappointed by man they've made a promise and then they haven't been able to keep that promise that's not how God operates when God promises something guess what he keeps his promise for Jesus to ride in on a donkey spoke of him being that long-awaited Messiah that we read about in God's word. The one to fulfill the prophecy that was foretold of old. old That spoke of Jesus. This was planned. This was not like Jesus in, in a pinch, like I got to figure out something to wow everybody in Jerusalem. That, that was, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants type of deal. It was... Listen, this has been prophesied, and I have come so that I might fulfill prophecy, which ultimately points to how incredibly powerful his triumphant entry was. It was powerful. Like I said, most kings would ride in on a horse signifying dictatorship and often tyranny, and much like our politicians today, 
rather than being in a posture of humility, they will take a pompous position, flaunting their own authority around and making people pay for when they don't bow down. Now, let me be clear for just a moment. Just because Jesus rode in on a donkey doesn't mean he became stripped of his power and authority. Rather, it demonstrates the meekness of Christ. It demonstrates his strength under control because if I were Jesus, which I'm not, uh, I would have rode in on a horse. I would have said, forget the donkey. Let's go find a, a, a stallion that's, that's not broken or how, whatever your horse lingo is. Uh, and, and let's just call down a legion of angels because I know what's coming and these Romans are coming after me. We might as well just wipe them out now. But he didn't do that. He could have called fire down from heaven and scorched the people. But he didn't. He came in meekness, strength under control, you see, it was a rare commodity uh, uh, that these people were experiencing because humility is a rare commodity. When you're around someone who has a fat head, you don't want to lean into what, what they're saying. They're prideful, they're arrogant, they think they know it all. If you're sitting next to your spouse, don't bump them or anything, okay? Okay. You, you don't want to receive it. They're prideful. It's not something that's appealing. I, I, and humility here, even in our day and age, is rare. We're called to be humble. We're called to exemplify Christ's humility. But when you're around somebody who is humble, when, when, when you ask them a question, and instead of trying to come up with one, they say, you know what, I don't really know it right now, but let me get back to you. You want to lean into them. You, you, you want to understand who they are. And that's what drew people to Jesus. His ability to be authoritative was not stripped, yet he was still humble. Now, I love what a commentator by the name of Clark says about Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem He he says it, it ultimately demonstrated humility over pride and worldly grandeur, of poverty over affluence, meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. People were used to dictators coming in and barking orders, but then the real king shows up. Much different than the way people were planning. They were thinking the Messiah would come and he would be like, okay, I'm here. Let's just get, let's cut to the chase. Let's get the kingdom going. We'll establish it now. And it, Jesus even told his disciples because they asked him the question. He says, will you restore the kingdom uh, to Israel at this time? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has appointed. He's like, hold your horses. So Jesus' entry drew many people to realize that this king is different. He's not like most kings. He's not like any of the kings that we've experienced. Uh, but what did the disciples do? It says they rejoiced 
and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Uh, now, they knew because they had spent time with Jesus that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. But you wouldn't expect this from a king, yet the strongest king, Jesus, is the most humblest king. He says, come to me, I, I, I'm lowly in heart, humble. Learn from me. It would do us well to look at Scripture to understand who Jesus is because some of us have too much pride going on in our hearts right now. Some of us need the Lord to strip us of that pride, to remove it. Sometimes we're even prideful to the way things God, the way that, that God wants to do things in our life, thinking that we know better. That's pride. Thinking that we know better than God Almighty who created you Check yourself. I love how Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. In in the Pharisees' rebuke, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in in a pretty gentle way. The Pharisees essentially said, can you tell your guys to be quiet? Like, tell all your disciples who are causing even more of a ruckus just to close their mouths. Like, Stop. It, the, the, the worship of Jesus, the, 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 the worthiness that they attributed to Jesus, it got under their skin. They hated that. And so, of course, they're going to be like, be quiet. You're causing a scene. But he answered them, or he rebuked them. He said, listen, if they were silent, inanimate objects that I created, they go by rocks, they would cry out. And he says, so even if I did tell them, they, 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 they would, the very stones, the ones that you're looking at right now, they would cry out and they would say, worthy are you, O Lord. So it was prophetic. It was, it was planned. And it was powerful. And now we come to the part, well, what does that mean for me? Because I'm not going to be riding into Jerusalem on a donkey anytime soon. What can I take away from Jesus' triumphal entry? Number one, you're going to love this. You will encounter suffering. (laughs) Like we've mentioned plenty of times already, this was a week before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus knew that, that this was essentially the onset of him being crucified. Now, crucifixion wasn't this on-the-spot made-up thing just because they wanted to get rid of Jesus. We'll talk about more of that on Good Friday. Crucifixion had already been around. It was actually started in Egypt, and the Romans, they mastered it. They, 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 they solidified it. It was brutal. It, it, it was gruesome. It was reserved For the worst of criminals. And guess who was on that cross being crucified? Jesus. Because they were mad at the fact that he was making himself to be equal with the Father. And so they said, crucify him. Away with him. And before he was even crucified, they they whipped his back. They put him on trial. This innocent man. But all of that that Jesus endured was God's greatest rescue plan for you and I. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
He gave his one and only son. It's not a gimmick and it's not a joke and it's not something that we just read in a history book. Jesus actually gave his life, died on the cross so you and I could be forgiven of our sins and have the hope of heaven, knowing the suffering that he went through, that he was the ultimate price for the the wages of our sin. Jesus died so we wouldn't have to. Suffering that we go through (laughs) compared to what Jesus went through Listen, Scripture says that you have not come to the point of suffering where you have shed blood like Jesus has. I'm not making light of anybody's suffering. You all, and I all, I all, (laughs) I go through suffering just like you. Jesus knew that the Father had sent him on this rescue mission that would cost him his earthly life full of suffering and pain and excruciating, an excruciating trial that truthfully none of us can comprehend. Even Passion of the Christ, as gory as that was when it showed Jesus on the cross, pales in comparison to what actually happened. But for you and I, suffering, being afflicted, going through trials, listen, in this life is inevitable. You and I will suffer. We will go through trials. We will go through heartache. We will go through tough times. Listen, trials of life are assured. And some of you are like, I hate this part of your message right now. (laughs) So do I. But the reality is, is that we've been promised tribulation. We've been promised affliction. We've been promised trials. Listen, whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever this morning, you are not excused from going through hard times. But listen, I can tell you this much. As a believer, going through tribulation and affliction and challenges and and things that just break you, going through it by yourself without the Lord is incredibly hard. But the joy that you can find in the midst of your trial when you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior changes the way you handle your trial. When trials come, what do we do? Oftentimes, we don't want to go forward. I'd rather be back there where it's comfortable and where I can just chill and not have to worry about all this heartache. And Oftentimes, we retract and... If, you're walk, if you've been in a, a season where you've been walking with the Lord and something's just, it just got you, sometimes we even go astray. The Bible says that we're, we're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We have to understand this, though. In the Christian life, there will be trials, but the Christian life is oftentimes oftentimes more so marked by trials and suffering than you and I would like to bargain for. John 16.33, your most favorite promise in the Bible. In this world, you will have tribulation. The word for tribulation is also translated pressure, affliction, It's also translated distress. The psalmist said this in Psalm 119, 
uh, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Listen, if we choose to look at suffering with an eternal perspective, we will come to realize that affliction is not designed by God to push us away. Rather, trials, suffering, afflictions, the pressure that you might feel, the distress that you might go through, are not designed to push us further away from God. They're designed so we can draw near to God. When you're going through something that's pressing, when you're going through something that's hard, when you're going through a marital challenge, or whether you're going through a financial issue, listen, the best advice, the best exhortation, encouragement that I can give to you this morning is this, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as your source of strength, as your solace, as your peace, as your all in all, because there ain't no way you're getting through what you're going through without him. Now, Jesus going into Jerusalem, he knew. He had the cross on his mind. He knew that this was coming. He knew the suffering of the cross was before him, yet he also knew that it would produce fruit that would last for all of eternity. If you are a follower of Christ today, you are a product of what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus did for you, you have surrendered to him. That makes his death on the cross, even if it was just for one person that he were to die for, it made it all worth the while. But here's some things to remember uh, when you're in a suffering season or you're about to go into a suffering season or you're on your way out of a suffering season. It's been said that you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to go into a trial. So listen, the Word of God gives us clear reasons to why trials happen. So when you're in a trial, don't think that it's God's way of just sitting up on his throne in heaven like, ha, look at them suffer. That's not our God. See, one thing to remember as we go through affliction is that affliction, trial, suffering, it brings about godly character. Romans 5, 3 through 5, it says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How's that going for you? Are you rejoicing in your suffering this morning? Are you just glad that you're in the midst of your trial? I would beg to differ that our responses are much different than what we're commanded to do. You mean to tell me that I'm supposed to rejoice in the midst of my sufferings? That's what scripture says. Even James says it. He says it counted all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness it produces patience it produces endurance Paul goes on to say in Romans here knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope listen friend this morning your trial your suffering your affliction is not going to be wasted God is going to use it to bring godly character into your life without the trials in life we will not experience growth or maturity as believers, we need, which this is going to sound shocking to some of you, we need trials. We need to understand what it means to be afflicted. We need to understand what Jesus meant when he said, in this world you will experience pressure. So it brings about godly character. Not only that, affliction 
causes us to be molded more into the image of Christ. I, I think if, if you're walking with the Lord, if you're mindful of the fact that God wants to conform you into the image of His Son, you're all on board for that. Like, yeah, I want to be more like Jesus. I, I want to I act more like Jesus. I want to respond more like Jesus. Do you know how He conforms you into the image of His Son? Through pressure, through affliction, through trials. Imagine if life was always easy. You wouldn't grow. You wouldn't mature. You wouldn't understand what it means to walk like Jesus walked in the midst of the suffering that he would face. It is through being crushed, pressed, perplexed, and molded that we become more and more like Jesus. David Jeremiah says this. He says, To say that we are clay in the hands of the potter acknowledges God's handiwork as the master potter or creator of our physical body. It also recognizes God's authority to shape us inwardly, to spiritually fashion us into a vessel fit for His use, molded as an image of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, God wants to form us into a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. Now, I am no potter, but I do like playing with Play-Doh. And as I was thinking about this, if I can get it out, oh yeah, it came out. As I was thinking about this, and I was, I, as I was looking over my notes this morning, I honestly thought about Play-Doh. I, I mean, maybe another translation of clay in the Greek could be Play-Doh, I don't know. But, but sometimes we're like Play-Doh. We're like, yes, I, I, this is who I want to be, and I don't know how to make a little human in five seconds or less, but I'm going to attempt to. This is what I want to be, and, 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 and this is how I want to grow. This is... Just bear with me in this analogy. Anyways, you're trying to make a masterpiece. You, you want God to do a work in you, and, and you're content with, with, with that thought, but then all of a sudden, He comes by and He molds you. And it hurts. It doesn't feel good. He chisels away some of the things that don't belong, and you're like, wait, wait, I didn't think that was a hindrance. And he starts molding you into a different image. And, and that image is his son. It, it, the things that we go through, listen, they cause us to, to learn to become flexible. Because you and I need to learn what it means to be flexible in the hands of the creator. Isaiah even says this. Can the clay say to the potter, don't do that to me? <laughs> no. Listen, if you're a Christian, it means this, your life has been submitted and surrendered and given over to the one who has better control over your life than you do. So listen, let him mold you. Let him shape you. Let him take out the things in your life that don't need to be there. Let him take the things out that are, that are causing you to, 
to slow down. Paul says to run the race with endurance. And yes, sometimes the things we go through, they will cause us to slow down. But listen, don't, don't stay down. In the process of your race, because we're all running a race according to Scripture, there are going to be things that you encounter. And the things that you encounter are going to be things that will cause you to trip and fall. And there will be things that God uses in your life for you to to understand that He's actually working in your life through the things that you're going through. But listen, in the process of running your, your race, trust the Master. Remember that he knows the beginning of your race to the end of your race. And everything in between, he has a watchful eye over. The second one is this. And we see this through the disciples. is when the Lord calls you to something, it'll be for his glory. Not for yours, but for his The disciples did a number of things in this passage, and I wish we had more time to go over these, but a couple, a number of things that they did was, number one, they submitted to the word of the Lord. Jesus told them to do something, and they said, okay, at your word, Lord, I'll I'll do it. They submitted to his word. They said, God, your word is the highest authority. I'm submitting to it. They trusted the word of the Lord. Now, I'm sure the disciples, being human, had some type of thought in their mind, like, is he serious right now? Like, is this actually going to work out? Like, they were human and they doubted. And you see that in the Great Commission, that some of them were full of doubt. But nevertheless, these disciples, they said, you know what? I'm going to trust his words. Do you trust the word of the Lord this morning? They acted on the word of the Lord. They could have said, Jesus, you're nuts, man. Like, you're, you're crazy. Like, I don't think this is actually... No. They, they didn't argue with him. They didn't say, I think he maybe didn't get enough sleep last night. No, they said, I trust it, therefore I will act upon it. I I will act on the word of God. I will be a doer of the word of God. And then the last thing is that they give glory to the Lord. But what I want to kind of hone in on for a moment is that the two disciples Whoever these two disciples were, because there's no mention of who they were, these two disciples were called by the Lord to do something that would point people to Jesus. Not themselves. See, they recognized that Jesus was calling them to do something. And what did they do? They put their cloaks on the donkey. And then when they were coming close to Jerusalem, they laid their cloaks down before the donkey I don't think a donkey is too concerned with getting its hooves muddy, but they said, listen, we want to do everything we can to contribute to people understanding that that Jesus is king. Listen, our contribution is exactly what Craig said today, in that we've been called to go and invite. Be an Andrew. Bring people alongside of you and say, listen, my life was like this, but God showed up. God changed my life, and I want you to know the same Jesus that I know. But they didn't do this to get glory for themselves. When the disciples came back, I, I imagine in, if, if it would have gone a different way, it may have gone like this. The disciples could have come, come back, and Jesus could have rode through Jerusalem, and all, all is said and done, and the, the historical event is completed. I imagine them having this side conversation. Uh, 
And I'm thankful it did not go like this. But imagine if the disciples said this. Bro, did you see what just happened? Like, that was awesome. One of them might have said, you should have seen the look on the guy's face when we were untying the donkey and then we were starting to walk off with it. And he was like, hey, where are you going? And when we told him that Jesus had need of it, it was like he already knew. And I bet you if, if this actually happened, Peter would have been the one to say, I bet after all this is said and done, we could go back to the village, plant a church, write a bunch of books, have our faces on the cover of the book. We'd be famous. But it didn't go that way. It went the way that the Lord knew that it was going to go. And guess who got the glory for their willingness to go and do what Jesus said was going to happen? God. When the disciples came back, all they could do was give glory to God for what they had seen Jesus do. Now, our problem is, much like the disciples, I'm sure, had a similar problem, is that you and I are glory hogs. We like to be recognized. We like, we like the, the fame and the notoriety, and, and, and we like to be told that we're, we're just all that in a bag of chips. I eat chips. I'm not sure why you say all that in a bag of chips. I don't want to be all that in a bag of chips. But what if our hearts were turned a different route? What if they were turned towards being more like Christ in our humility? If we want to be more and more like Jesus, I can tell you right now, the thing that has to go is our pride, is our ego, is our selfishness. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Do you know what denying yourself truthfully points to? It points to the fact that you understand this. It's not about you. John 3, 30. John said, Jesus must increase. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, the cry of our heart should be similar to the psalmist in Psalm 115, verse 1, where he said, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. That should be the anthem of our heart, is not to us, God, but to you alone. May you receive the glory. In closing... I wanted to share just a, a personal story. When I was on staff at a church in Southern California, I'd been serving in kids' ministry for years, um, teaching, assisting. I remember the first spot that they had put me in was in this one classroom where all the classrooms would eventually come, and that's where snack was, was served. I was known as the snack guy. Um, but within Harvest, there were so many different ministries, and in Har Harvest... <laughs> Uh, they're very known for uh, uh, having new believers come into the church. Um, people give their lives to Christ and they want to know what to do next. And so Harvest had a ministry called Start to Follow. 
And Start to Follow was designed to teach the basics to those who had just started following Christ. So we would talk about the Trinity and trials and temptations and what is church and why should you serve and, and what the Bible is. And, and so we would talk about these, but uh, there was a leader who was over it at the time who got into a very immoral relationship. The pastors would soon find out and they would ask this leader to leave, which ultimately left a gap in the ministry. It left a place for somebody to to assume that leadership position. And I had heard about this volunteer position and I figured that they'd probably call on one of these guys who was an intern pastor who had way more experience than I did. And But I felt like the Lord was nudging me, like, send him an email. Just ask if they would consider. And so I did. I didn't think anybody would really care about receiving an email from a snack guy in children's ministry. But a couple days after that, I was approached by the overseeing pastor. And I was asked if I would be interested in fulfilling that ministry role. And so, yes, sign me up. And so, so I did, and one Monday night... We were on a teaching rotation, and I remember I had never preached a message in my entire life, and I didn't know what I was doing, and some of you are, in your minds, are like, you still don't know what you're doing, um, but that's okay, God will forgive you, um, <laughs> but it was my turn to speak on the topic of trials and temptations. In that time, it was one of my least favorite topics to teach on. Because nobody wants to hear that they have to endure trials. And I realized that as I saw other pastors preaching it and the look, of people, the look uh, on people's faces of, man, I got to go through that. New believers ultimately trembling with, oh, I don't want to. And I remember one Monday night, I gave a mini message. They were not as long as these. <laughs> And during this message, I, I, I could see this lady just bawling her eyes out. And I was unfamiliar with that, the, the, the whole emphasis that the Holy Spirit could speak through the Word of God. I didn't know what was happening. And so in, in the only, way, only thing I knew to do was to keep on going through my notes as fast as I could. Because I had no idea what was going on. I was young, and when it came to teaching... I was a mess. But after the study, this lady had come up to me and she was still crying. And, and I asked the question, are you okay? And all she could say was, thank you. And I'm standing there thinking, for what? I didn't do anything. I, I, I just was standing here just reading my notes and, and sharing that we're going to have to endure trials and temptations, but that the Lord would be with you. And she knew I had no idea why, I, I had no idea what she was thanking me for. And so she looked at me and she says, she said, the word of God through your message really struck a chord in my heart. And as I look back, I can't take credit for that. My words are powerless. Unless what is coming out of my mouth is from the word of God, 
My words are powerless. It's the word of God that has the power to change lives and transform lives. And, and we have to remember that. But anytime something like that happens in your life, because listen, if you're just available and you're saying, Lord, use me, and you're taking the word of God with you, the only logical response to something like that happening in your life is this, glory be to God. Not to us, but to you, Lord, belongs the glory. Your king walks through your trials with you. Remember that. So, who's your king this morning? And Ian, you can come back up, sorry. Uh, But listen, Palm Sunday points to Jesus being our king. And if he's not your king today, if you haven't bowed down to him, do it today. It points to affliction. Yet in that affliction, there's purpose and promise. And Palm Sunday points to how only God should get the glory for whatever he chooses to use us for in this life. Amen? Let's all stand. We'll pray and then close out in a a chorus. Lord, thank you for being our king, our righteous king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Nobody compares to you. Our human language, our English dictionary does not have enough words to describe who you are. The best that we can do, God, is worship you for who you are. And so, God, in this brief time that we have in closing our service with worship, God, may we just worship you with all of our hearts, soul, and mind. May we just give you everything we've got. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we all said, amen.